Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. St. Helens was the first mountain I ever did a, a mountaineering climb on when I was 15. Uh, and uh, I was a, a, a natural uh, animist even then. And so I uh, took advantage of the situation to pray to the mountain, which I assumed was a goddess, uh, and uh, ask for some kind of help of whatever sort I might need. Uh, And then the next morning, uh, down by Spirit Lake, uh, the Forest Service had uh, newspapers pinned up on the wall of their uh, bulletin board. And there were the uh, Portland Oregonian, uh, two or three days late because it takes a while to drive there, uh, big article on dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, uh, and photographs from the air, and you know comments on it, and I was uh, sort of horrified. So uh, I swore my little vow uh, that uh, by the beautiful form of Mount St. Helens, I would resist the use and spread of nuclear weapons for my life, and. Uh, the irony is that Mount St. Helens blew up in 1980, <laughs> lost 2,000 feet off the top. Uh, so that I finally got back up there to spend some time with it, and uh, that kind of generated uh, some of the thoughts in this book called Danger on Peaks. I'll read a few of these poems. This one's called Enjoy the Day, at the end of section one, Mount St. Helens. One morning on a ridge top east of Lutwit, Mount St. Helens, after... I can't read very well down there. Uh, After camp stove coffee, looking at that youthful old volcano, breathing steam and sulfur, sunrise lava, bowls of snow, went up behind a mountain hemlock, asked my old advisors where they lay, what's going on? They say, new friends and dear sweet old tree ghosts, Here we are again. Enjoy the day. Mariano Vallejo's library, Vallejo's library, uh, the last Mexican governor of California, uh, Vallejo, California, named after him. He wanted that to become the capital of California. He said, there's a good deep water port there, and it's much warmer and not nearly so foggy. Uh, as San Francisco. He was right, of course. Uh, he really uh, cast his cast his energy with the Yankees. And he, uh, he was a kind of a, a enlightenment person who had uh, gotten lots of books via British and Spanish ships, that sailing ships that came uh, every you know, four or five months a ship would come into San Francisco Bay or into Monterey Bay. And he built up quite a library. And he was reading, uh, he was reading Rousseau, Voltaire. Uh, he had all of these books. In fact, it is said that he had the best library in the whole Pacific. Uh, uh, in, that is to say, the best Occidental language library in the whole Pacific. Uh, on the uh, western side of the Pacific, of course, the Chinese and Japanese had enormous libraries. Uh, People might not be aware 
uh, of what is said about the Chinese uh, uh, books and publishing, which was that there were more books in print in Chinese as, a, as, a, as late as the year 1800 than all the other languages of the world combined. Uh, so Vallejo did have this wonderful library, which he moved uh, uh, eventually to his new uh, house in uh, Napa. Uh, a remnant of that is still there, but his original house, the, what they called the Big Casa, burned down, and he lost the whole library. Uh, that's only part of what this is about. Mariano Vallejo's library. Mariano Vallejo's library was the best in the Eastern Pacific. He was reading Rousseau, Voltaire. Some bought from the ship Leonore. The Yankees arrived. He welcomed them. Though they drove off his horses and cattle. And then one year the casa, books and all, burned to the ground. The old adobe, east of the Petaluma River, still stands. Silvery sheds in the pasture once were chicken coops there. The new box mansions march up the slope. At my sister's empty shells book party, some retired chicken growers walked in cuddling favorite birds. Vallejo taught wine-growing tricks to Charles Krug and Augustin Harasti. The vineyards now are everywhere. But the anarchist egg growers are gone. The bed of the bay, all shallowed by mining, pre-Ice Age Sierra dry riverbeds, upturned for gold, and the stream gravel washed off by, horse, by hoses, and swept down to the valley in floods. Farmers lost patience, the miners are gone now, too. New people live in the foothills. Pine pitch and dust, poison oak. The barnyard fence shades jimson weed, datura, toloake, white trumpet flower, dark leaf. The old ones from the world before taught care. Whoever's here, whatever language, race, or century, be aware. That plant can scour your mind. Put all your books behind. We had some young guys in my area recklessly eat a bunch of jimson weed a few years ago. They didn't recover for weeks. I'm not sure if they ever recovered. Waiting for a ride. Standing at the baggage, passing time, in the Austin, Texas airport. My ride hasn't come yet. My former wife is making websites from her home. One son is seldom seen. The other one and his wife have a boy and girl of their own. My present wife and stepdaughter are spending weekdays in town so she can get to high school. My mother, 96, still lives alone, and she's in town too. She always gets her sanity back just barely in time. <laughs> 
My former, former wife uh, has become a unique poet. Most of my work, such as it is, is done. Full moon was October 2nd this year, so I ate a moon cake, slept out on the deck, the white light beaming through the black boughs of the pine, owl hoots, rattling antlers, castor and pollux rising strong. It's good to know that the pole star shifts, that even our present night sky slips away. Not that I'll see it, or maybe I will, much later. Some far time walking the spirit path in the sky, that long walk of spirits where you fall right back into the narrow, painful passageway of the bardo. Squeeze your little skull and... There you are again, waiting for your ride. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Coyote, when he had a problem, took a on the grass. He asked his turds where they lay, what to do. They gave him good advice. He'd say, That's just what I thought, too. (laughs) And do it. And go his way. One thing I worked on uh, in this series of poems was uh, exploring uh, the the form called haibun, uh, the Japanese combination of a traditional Japanese poetic combination of a block of narrative prose, a small block of narrative prose, and then a haiku. It's a remarkable form. Of course, the, the most famous uh, haibun uh, that we know of uh, in the West is uh, Basho's Okunohosomichi, the uh, narrow trails of the backcountry. Uh, that's only about 35 pages long, uh, which was written as an account. It was the account, you know, ultimately that he kept uh, of a six-month walking journey. Uh, from the Tokyo area northward, uh, then crossing east-west, crossing west over the mountain ranges to the Japan Sea Coast, walking all the way back down the Japan Sea Coast, and then going back over the mountains again uh, to his little hermitage in uh, on the outskirts of Tokyo, which was called Basho. Basho means a pine, a a, a, a banana plant. And um, Basho was called Basho because he had a banana plant at his cottage. Uh, almost all of the Chinese and uh, Japanese writers in pre-modern times had little literary names like that. Uh, and uh, nobody you know, refers to them by their family names. And I, I would have to really do a little research to know what Basho's uh, actual family name was. The Zen priests and Zen monks, all the Buddhist priests and monks, whatever school, they all have different names. You know, we have this um, uh, current tradition in Occidental culture the last few thousand years of getting your name and keeping it your whole life. <laughs> and uh, there are a lot of cultures where you end up with five or six different names and you know the name that you were first given nobody would ever use. Uh, so, you know, it's just a comment on differences. 
that may or may not matter. Uh, I don't, I've never considered myself a haiku poet. I don't think that I have written what I would accept as haiku more than three or four times because haiku has a very specific aesthetic. Uh, it, do, it isn't a matter of counting syllables. It's a matter of the sensibility and the way uh, uh, things are presented that make a haiku. Uh, so I don't, but I won a prize in Japan for being uh, an international haiku poet. And I, they dragged me there kicking and screaming all the way. As I said, but I don't write haiku. And you know, the Japanese are wonderful. They said, well, we know that, but. Uh, <laughs> they said, but the rest of the world doesn't. <laughs> so they were very nice to me. So these are, little, these are prose plus a little short poem. Uh, this is called One Day in Late Summer. One day in late summer, in the early 90s, I had lunch with my old friend Jack Hogan, ex-longshore union worker and activist of San Francisco, at a restaurant in my small Sierra town. The owner had recently bought and torn down the adjoining brick building, which had been, in its time, a second-hand bookstore. Three R's, run by a puckish ex-professor. Our lunch table in the patio was right where his counter had been. I bought many books from him. Jack was married to my sister once. We all hung out in North Beach back in the 50s, but now he lives in Mexico. This present moment that lives on to become long ago. Spilling the Wind. This is out of the Kasumnas River Reserve, uh, south of Sacramento. It's a great place for all kinds of waterfowl. Uh, and uh, sandhill cranes come in there, too, although not in such numbers uh, as they do uh, over near Walnut Grove. Spilling the Wind. The faraway line of the freeway, faint murmur of motors, the slow, steady semis and darting little cars, two thin steel towers with faint lights high up blinking, and we turn on a raised dirt road between two flooded fallow rice fields. Wind brings more roar of cars. Hundreds of white-fronted geese from nowhere spill the wind from their wings wobbling and side-slipping down. And actually, you can see that if you pay attention to when they uh, start to descend. These are the larger birds. How they'll turn their wing so that they drop the lift. They break the lift, and they actually begin to fall. Uh, and, and they can come down fast that way. And then they pick up the lift again, and... Uh, well, those big tundra swan, they land like a, uh, a, a huge jet, sort of coasting in very gradually. My sister, Thea Lowry, uh, who lived in Novato in the Petaluma area, 
did write a book about the uh, whole uh, Petaluma, California area chicken business. Took her 10 years working on that. It was uh, really a labor of love. And the book was published, and then she was killed uh, in, by a totally surprise automobile accident um, driving down the, the 101 to uh, a meeting of the grand jury, which she was on, Marin County Grand Jury. Uh, but um, she was such a nervy person all her life, uh, with horses, with airplanes, with men, with women, with everything. Uh, and... The car ahead of her, the pickup truck ahead of her, uh, had a grass-cutting machine that broke loose. Apparently it was tied down, but it broke loose. And the gate wasn't up, and the uh, the grass mower, one of those um, rotary mowers, fell into the lane. And she pulled right onto the shoulder, got out, headed to get that grass mower out of the lane, and was just hit by a car and killed instantly. That was in 2002. For Anthea Corinne Snyder Lowry. She was on the Marin County Grand Jury heading to a meeting south of Petaluma on the 101. The pickup ahead of her lost a grass mower off the back. She pulled onto the shoulder and walked right out into the lane to take it off. That had always been her way. Struck by a speedy car and instant death. White egrets standing there, always standing there, there at the crossing on the Petaluma River. Giovanni Singleton said to me earlier, well, you're used to breaking conventions. And I said, only when I need to, which sometimes is rather frequent, but... I'm going to read now uh, several very recent poems. Siberian Outpost. This is an esoteric location that uh, only backpackers would ever know about. Uh, going south of Mount Whitney as the Sierra high country gradually, really, rather swiftly begins to descend, but you're still at ten or 11,000 feet. The Pacific Crest Trail winds across a virtual desert at the 10,000-foot level, to uh, an area that is known uh, on the maps and to backpackers as Siberian Outpost. In a huge foxtail pine, uh, open foxtail pine forest that sweeps all along the edge of that. Uh, it was known to the early sheep herders and, of course, the packers that are still working in there uh, with their stock, the mule and horse packers. They all know about the Siberian outpost. <clears throat> Siberian outpost. What are these deserts? Sheep overgrazed them years ago? A sweeping gallery forest and a gentle five-mile ridge of foxtail pine. Tom and I walk up the arid slope. Caught in lightning crashes, Siberian outpost meadow. Bunch grass tufts and gopher holes. Shelter in the space beneath a huge old edge zone, foxtail pine. Hailstorm, heavy showers. Big root trees, red bark chunks. We stay barely dry. 
lifetimes ago. This same tree sheltered me on Thornapple Island. I was a junior bodhisattva then, named No More Tricks. <laughs> and I was sent to sit with the boulders here, an eon or two, till the soil rose up to my eyes. I shook and yanked and stood and said, Okay, Tom, let's head back to camp. The desert smells like rain. Um, stories in the Night. Two more poems. Stories in the Night. California, native California, uh, only had uh, storytelling in the wintertime. They didn't tell stories in the summer. Uh, but they had a very, very rich body of oral literature uh, to entertain themselves and to entertain and raise the young people with. And so you're not supposed to read coyote tales or anything like that at all in the summer, only in the winter. Stories in the Night Yesterday I was working most of the day with a breakdown in the system. Main generator, backup generator, an old phased-out generator number three. The battery array, the big trace inverter, they had all stopped. Cold, early morning in the dark. Solar panels always work, but there's no sun. Back to the old days, kerosene lamps and wood stoves, always there. The big green Onan, fueled by propane, wouldn't start. One time, turned out, there was a clogged air cleaner. Oil drops blow back up from deep inside. Try to remember, machinery can always be fixed. But be ready to give up the plans that were made for the day. Go back to the manual. Call up friends who know more. Make some tea. Relax with your tools and your problems. Start enjoying the day. <laughs> First 15 years we lived here, it was kerosene lamps. Heavy tile roof in the shade of a huge pre-contact oak. Sherry, Siegfried's longtime woman friend and partner, is due at any time with a nine-ton truck of three-quarters-inch crushed rock. Wet dirt every winter eats up gravel. Keeping a few hard roads for drenching winter rains and melting snows is hard. You have to ditch them, too. In 1962, going all through Kyushu with Joanne, we walked through Hiroshima. Busy streets, coffee shops, green leafy trees, gardens. A lively place. But at Mount Aso, the caldera in the center of the island, the main, the crater 30 miles across, saw sightseers from Nagasaki with that twisted, shiny, scarred, burned face of survivors. And then read Barefoot Gin, two volumes in English, the book-length graphic tale of Hiroshima. What got me about the bomb was too much power. And then temptation comes to be the first, to be the superpower of the world. We must change our course around, or there we head.
I could never be a Muslim, a Christian, or a Jew, because the Ten Commandments fall short of moral rigor. The Bible's shalt not kill leaves out the other realms of life. How could that be? What sort of world did they think this was? With no account for all the wriggling feelers and the little fins, the spines, the slimy necks, eyes shining in the night, paw prints in the snow. Sure, we have to eat, but still, at least say thanks. And that other thing, can't have no other God before me. Like profound anxiety of power and jealousy and envy. What sort of God is that? <laughs> Worrying all the time. Plenty of little gods are waiting to begin their practice and learn just who they are. In North India, 4th century AD, some Buddhist teacher lady said, that God called Yahweh to the West. He's really something. But too bad. He has this nutty thing that he's the creator of the world. A delusion that could really set you back. <laughs> but returning to energy. I'll fix the Onan. I'll give up on number three. It's too far gone. And next time I'll get a backup generator with a cast iron block and water cooling and a warranty good for centuries. <laughs> Put in a bunch of more solar panels for the sun. The old time people here in warm earth lodges 30 feet across burned pitchy pine wood slivers for their candles. Snow after snow for all the centuries before. Lodgepole light, lodge fire light, and pitchy slivers burning. Don't need much light for stories in the night. So I expect to get a fatwa on me now <laughs> from somebody. <laughs> Maybe I'll be defrocked. Final little poem, a letter to M.A. who lives far away. 13-year-old young lady who, um, I knew her father. And she wrote me about writing poetry, and the, the whole letter rhymed. Uh, so I wrote her back in the same vein. A letter to M.A. who lives far away. Dear Melissa, I do remember you. You had curly hair and stood by the stair up there on Quadra Isle, with a shy smile. Say hello to your mother, Jean. I don't remember your sister's name, and that's a shame. But I sort of remember her face and natural grace. Not all poetry has to rhyme. But this time, I'm writing back the way you did it. It's to your credit. You got me to write this form. Since real poetry is born from a formless place, which is our original face, Zen Buddhists say, in play. So, if this helps you to be a writer, it will please your new friend, Gary Snyder. <laughs>
Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.